Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Howdy, my good friends. Thank you for coming by today. I remember being a little feller and my mother taking us up to what was then called Woodrum Airport in Roanoke, Virginia. We were there because back then there weren't a whole lot of cell phones or computers. Matter of fact, I never saw one. There wasn't a whole lot on TV either during the day, so you just found something you do during the day to get out of the house. Back in the Something to do for us was to spend a little time watching the big Piedmont Airlines planes take off and land. It was pretty interesting to me and my little brothers to see those big things fly over. Now, I don't know how many of you ever heard of Piedmont Airlines, but three years after the end of World War II, in a growing city of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a new Piedmont Airlines was born. Piedmont had every reason to tout a safe fleet of pilots as the war's end had poured thousands of highly trained pilots and an armada of aircraft into the u.s economy piedmont's first fleet was all dc-3s which were one of the most reliable planes used by the military during the war by 1959 piedmont had moved into the jet age but the 15 year old buckeye peacemaker was the known to have flown over 26,000 hours without a single incident. It now looks antique, but the DC-3 was on the cutting edge of aviation when it came along in 1936. It had transformed the airline industry by making cross-country flights practical for the first time. Before, they'd relied on the Ford Trimotor, which had hard wicker seats, no soundproofing, and they couldn't fly long distances without refueling. Indeed, the DC-3 had changed everything. It was the height of luxury at the time. 
with a pair of Pratt & Whitney engines, the DC-3 could move up to 24 passengers with its quiet cabin and individual overhead lighting and passenger air-controlled circulation system. The McDonnell Douglas aircraft had proven so dependable that over 10,000 were manufactured, mostly for the military as troop and equipment transports. Among these, 10,000 planes was number N55V. From its beginning up until 1959, Piedmont Airlines was deemed the safest airline there was, operating without a single mishap over its entire life. That would all change on fall of 1959. Come on in, set a spell. Let me tell you about plane number November 55 Victor, Piedmont Airlines Flight 349. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The world in 1959 was a vastly different place than it is now. Charlottesville... Virginia's first suburban strip mall, Barracks Road Shopping Center, where a Kroger's grocery had already opened with great fanfare, including a massive searchlight to light up the skies that could be seen for miles away had already opened. And on the night of Friday, October 30th, 1959, a UVA undergrad student, Ray Berry, was outdoors in the broadcast booth at Albemarle High School. A radio reporter from AM station WCHV, he was providing color commentary for the Friday night football game between the Albemarle Patriots and the visiting Waynesboro Little Giants. From the school, Ray could see the beam of the new Kroger searchlight shining into the cloudy sky from a mile and a half away. But the light wasn't the only unusual thing moving overhead. Atop the bleachers in the press box at around 8.30, he heard the sound of an airplane above the cloud ceiling, a plane six miles south of the Charlottesville Albemarle Airport and heading west, which made no sense at all. Hearing a plane flying low from east to west was a route in those days that no commercial plane ever flew over, and that immediately got his attention. Ray couldn't get the sound of the plane out of his head, so when he returned to the station around 10 o'clock, he decided to call the airport to see if a plane was lost. He got a terse no comment. He thought, well, now, he might just be on to something. A regularly scheduled flight out of Washington with stops in Charlottesville and Lynchburg before its final destination in Roanoke, Flight 349 was a favorite for business people and vacationers. Just a night before the new moon, there was a little light <clears throat> on the cloudy fall night, but other than that, the skies seemed very quiet. Earlier that Friday at 7.30 p.m., the time of the scheduled departure, 23 of the 24 plane, uh, passenger seats had been filled on the plane. An engineering equipment rep who lived in Ivy, Robert C. Ashcom, had a ticket to get home for that flight, but he was delayed, so one of the two standbys would be able to take his place. 
that lone empty seat was located to the right rear of the cabin, unlike the port side chairs which were arranged in pairs. Each starboard seat was on its own. The, at 7.49, the cabin door closed and Phil Bradley, who left home on Monday, felt relieved that he got to seat. Phil Bradley was a native of Clifton Forge, who gave up an apprenticeship with the CNO Railway to join the Navy during World War II aboard the SS George E. Badger. He ferried men and machines, including 60-inch searchlights, across the English Channel on D-Day to the beaches of Normandy. After college, he turned his attention to helping the men as a labor organizer in the International Association of Machinists. Returning from an all-day trip to, for an AFL-CIO meeting in Oklahoma City, he had extended layover in Chicago's O'Hare Airport, where he bought a copy of Exodus, Leon Ursus' fictionalized account of the settlement of Israel, but had only been able to read about 13 pages of it so far. Flight 349 was running 19 minutes behind schedule when it took off from National Airport at 749. As the plane taxied along runway 33, Phil tapped another person named Ruth Silberman on the wrist and pointed out a gleaming nighttime view of the Washington Monument. He couldn't have known just how much Miss Silberman would appreciate the scene. In fact, the mother of two was an amateur photographer and had once taken the plane ride over region at Rio de Janeiro to snap a picture of the giant statue of Christ. On this night, without her camera in hand, she smiled and nodded. That was the last time Phil spoke to his fellow passengers as he took his seat. Further up in the cabin, the only other woman aboard the plane was Lynchburg resident Margaret Whitehouse, who was returning with her husband, Lawrence, from a trip to New York City that can bind a nice shopping spree with her husband's business trip. The White Houses were well known in Lynchburg, as along with another family, they owned the company that made Chapstick. While trips to the big city were common for them, they actually preferred to take the, preferred to take the train. There was a young native of Radford, Virginia, who was returning home for his grandmother's funeral as well. There were four passengers headed back to Babcock Wilcox, the Lynchburg-based nuclear components company. Three DuPont employees who'd been, who'd been to Philadelphia were returning to Waynesboro. Also on the flight was Jimmy Helms, a 32-year-old veteran of the UVA drama scene, on his way back from a conference. Other passengers included a pipeline engineer going to see his son in Charlottesville, a pair of textile executives making a sales call in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, beautiful place, White Sulphur Springs, and a former Nelson County School Board member who ran the American Sinamid plant in Piney River. Everything seemed normal as the flight was cruising under instrument flight rules above the overcast layer. Phil, a frequent flyer at 4,000 feet up, could see the usual landmarks as the lights of Culpeper, where his older brother was stationed as a state trooper. Ahead of the Charlottesville, according to the latest weather report, there was a broken layer of clouds at 1,500 feet with 10 miles of visibility. Phil had seen the glow of the Kroger searchlight on a prior flight and saw it again lighten up the clouds. The cabin lights were lowered, 
The passengers were instructed to fasten their seat belts and extinguish all cigarettes. Yes, folks, they were allowed to smoke on airplanes for a long time. And they did that in preparation of landing. They could feel the pull of gravity as the plane began its final approach. Phil was expecting a little swing to the left and then to the uh, right turn to just over 180 degrees for the final approach to the airport, something pilots call their procedure turn, the last move before touching down. But to Phil, something didn't seem right. The plane didn't make one turn. It made several turns, a couple of various and small turns. Phil began to wonder if the pilot was trying to find a runway or something. Could an experienced commercial plane really get lost on final approach? When the Kroger searchlight appeared for a second time under the right wing, Phil thought that the bad weather just meant Charlottesville was going to have to be bypassed for the next stop in Lynchburg. Phil thought that it must be the case because... George Hicks, the flight attendant, had began arranging a tray and pouring four or five cups of coffee. Then came the sound that reverberated through the whole plane as the landing gear was lowered, which made even less sense to Phil. The plane continued its ascent, and the vehicle began turning again. By this time, Phil was thinking Flight 349 should have already landed. Its final move was a starboard turn because the right wing was dipped about 10 degrees and the plane was headed north-northwest as if nearing the end of a procedure turn. A group of passengers at center left in the cabin were laughing and then it happened. Phil instantly recognized the sound of tree branches brushing the right wing and glanced at his wristwatch and it was exactly 8.40. That's when all the laughter stopped and the plane began to become deathly quiet as the plane begun yawing to its right and then a thick canopy of limbs and leaves and the trees got thicker closer to the ground and then ripped off the right wing. Next the entire fuselage began rolling to the right. Finally after hurtling 144 feet through the Appalachian Mountains the plane lost its left wing and as it hit nose first into the rocky slope of Buck's Elbow Mountain. Phil remembers just before getting smacked in the face by the ground as he and his seat flew through an opening that was ripped in the side of their plane and rolled across the ground and he saw a vision of Jesus Christ there on the mountain. Barefoot, shrouded in mist and wearing a flowing white robe, Jesus told him, Be concerned not, I will be with you always. Then when he came to rest, he spit out a tooth which the last thing he remembers before the impact was roaring like a angry waves breaking through the beach. He hollered to see if anybody else would respond, to see if anybody else was even alive. There was no response except for a high-pitched, blood-curdling scream, something that he later thought might have been a wildcat of some kind. As Phil lay stunned on the pitch-black mountain dark, he yelled out again for anybody out there. He started feeling around to assess his surroundings. He felt a leg and a knee right by him, and just like him, that passenger was still. It was still strapped in his seat, too. But when Phil called out to him, there was nothing but silence. Afraid that he might be in some kind of a shock, Phil checked himself for injuries and didn't find any, so he took his seatbelt loose and started to get up, and 
that's when he first realized that he, something was wrong. His left foot was going opposite direction of his right foot. His left hip was badly dislocated. Now, knowing that he couldn't stand, he reached into his pocket and dug out an L&M cigarette and his lighter. But that's when he smelled aircraft fuel and decided, well, it might not be a good time to light up. Despite over 100 gallons of fuel on board the plane now being thrown all over the mountainside, just two or three small fires flared up and then went out. The light rain started falling. While the little bit that fell didn't really seem to help fires put out fires any, it was enough, I guess, to soak Phil's clothes, and that's when the temperature fell to 43 degrees. Folks, that may not seem like all that cold, but without shelter and being on a mountain, it's plenty cold enough for hypothermia to set in, as in any of us that's ever been out there in the mountains know. As Phil lay there and waited for help to come, he could hear the sound of a cheering crowd and a marching band. He could hear cars driving along and a, a road that was nearby, but he could hear trains as they wound along their tracks through the mountains. Now driving home from the radio station around midnight, reporter Ray Berry decided to pursue his hunch that something was up with the plane he'd heard. Then, living north of town off Prophet Road, he swung by the airport and quickly spotted enough commotion to confirm his suspicion. In those days, besides covering local sports for WCHV, he was, it was a music station. Whatever news it carried came out of a teletype machine from the Mutual and ABC radio networks. That is, until October 30th, 1959, when Ray Barry smelled a story. He dispatched himself on his own news assignment, even though he had no tape recorder. All he had was a pad for notes. After a hectic Friday night at the airport, phoning in, in reports about fearful relatives and a search with few clues, Ray stretched out in the terminal to catch a nap. Up until that Friday night, Charlottesville had never been the center of search for a missing plane, but a Piedmont Airlines had never been even thought of to have a crash because they hadn't had one. By now, Phil Thompson, he had to be near Charlottesville and figured help would be coming along pretty soon. Phil finally realized that search and rescue efforts would be hampered by the Nighttime darkness, but Saturday morning held the hope of a rescue. Unfortunately for Phil, who didn't sleep at all, the sun came up Halloween morning and the sight of that he saw was uh, so stunning to him that he couldn't believe it. The next morning back in Charlottesville, having convinced the helicopter crew that they needed somebody who knew the local terrain, Ray Berry himself uh, got a spot on board to help him search. But it was fruitless because... All of the fall foliage, which dotted the landscape in bright colors, as big as a DC-3 might be in the search, that spread out over a four-county area with hundreds of square miles of mountain terrain. It was a tiny speck in the overall picture. 1959 was a time before any commercial airliners were tracked with radar or carried a distress beacon, or and, and the now standard black boxes weren't even carried, and the Satellite-driven GPS system, well, <laughs> that was even imagined back then. Nobody had any idea at all where Flight 349 was. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There were scattered reports coming from across central Virginia of a low-flying plane that that night. State Trooper Felix A. Bradley Jr., based in Culpeper, was particularly upset because he knew his younger brother Phil was on that plane. As Phil spit out yet another tooth as he took in the scene, he could now clearly see what surrounded him. Shoes, luggage, countless pieces of jagged metal, and the 26 bodies of those who had flown alongside him. Since the passengers had been told to prepare for landing, they were still strapped in, but the same couldn't be said for their seats. All of them were ripped away from the floor. A giant hole that opened up near the entire right side of the passenger compartment, and seats and people were hanging out through the hole. He had to be the hole that Phil flew through, of course, before smacking the ground and tumbling to where he laid. A black bear and her cub walked over, paused, and moved on. Phil wondered if lighting a small fire might signal those who were searching for the plane, but unable to move and not able to escape if it spread, he decided, well, that's probably not a good idea. By 11 o'clock in the morning, mountain fog began to move in around the crash site and lasted until 2 p.m., even after the fog lifted, he could only listen helplessly as rescue aircraft flew over, but never seemed to spot the rip in the trees left by the crash. Back in Scarsdale, New York, teenager Janet Silberman had been planning to accompany her parents on their trip to Virginia. Her younger brother had just begun his freshman year at Stanton Military Academy, and the Silbermans had planned to get away to see him and the beautiful fall mountain foliage was in full bloom in the Shenandoah Valley during that time. The best time to go there, folks, I tell you. But when the handsome Yale student invited Janet to a football game, her plans for the weekend changed. She was in the stands in New Haven on Saturday when a close family friend who was also the family attorney suddenly showed up. She told him that she didn't realize he went to Yale as she was kind of joking with him about it, but the man was grim-faced and told her that he was sorry, but the game was over for her. Then he explained that the plane her parents were on was missing. Alone, injured, and now hungry, Phil was facing weather conditions that would only compound his misery and could possibly take his life. While Saturday's daytime temperature climbed to 60, it dropped like a rock to 47 that night. And while the the first night had been calm, winds picked up, and the sustained winds were about 32 miles an hour at the lower elevations, so you can all imagine up on the mountain what it was doing. Though immobilized from the waist down, Phil managed to grab a nearby blanket and hunker down for another night. Unknown to him or anybody else, he was laying on a southeastern flank of Buck's Elbow Mountain, just about two and a half miles from a bustling little town called Crozet. He could hear cars honking, dogs barking, and occasional human hollering, but not for him. Sunday, November 1st, dawned with clear skies. By this point, 
Phil had been on the mountain for nearly 36 hours and a new visitor bought the prospect of, oh, well, additional terror. A turkey buzzard, so named for its distinctive red head, swooped in and began staring at Phil like it was waiting on him to die. Then, within an hour, as if it had sounded a dinner bell, dozens of them had showed up. Phil, now fearing that his eyes would be plucked out, picked up a stick and began swinging it at him. Finally, while perched inside an Air Force helicopter over Crozet, the early morning light of Sunday morning, Sergeant Robert A. Mondragon of Andrews Air Force Base thought he saw a glint of sunlight on metal. He had them circle over again, and he could see the wreckage, but no signs of life. About 30 minutes later, the first official to reach Phil was Sergeant John Weiss, who came down from Massachusetts Station at Otis Air Force Base. I'm sure glad to see you, Phil told him. Then told him that he was all right, but according to Ray Barry, it was he who made the first accidental land contact. He and veteran Daily Progress photographer Rip Payne had got themselves a ride to on a military helicopter. And aboard was Virginia State Trooper John Pannell, who, after Mondragon's copter hovered over the site, urged Ray Barry to go back to the mountaintop to get the helicopter pilot to hover again. But the chopper had already left, so Ray headed back down a slightly different route and stumbled right into the horrible scene. Ray reported that Phil wanted to know what took so long. In a joking manner, even though how bad he was hurt and what all he's been through, he's still joking about that. Some kind of shock, I would say. Soon there are 200 spectators who gathered at Scott Stadium in hopes of watching helicopters bring in bodies. Most, not all, reached the morgue and ambulances. In an area that was well short of today's entertainment, authorities knew that rubbernecking and grabbing disaster souvenirs were spectator sports today, and they wanted to avoid that. Alvin Toms was sent to the crash site to keep these kind of things from happening. Then, employed by Crozet as assistant manager of People's National Bank, Alvin considered his prouder calling serving in the Crozet Volunteer Fire Department. The 27-year-old was awake Sunday morning when around 8 o'clock, the siren atop the old coal storage building went off. Arriving in time to see Phil carried up the mountaintop, Alvin quickly found himself working a victim recovery operation, which would be forever etched into his memory. He spent several hours putting bodies on stretchers and then carrying them up the steep slopes to the peak of the mountain late that afternoon. Alvin got a new job, site security. He and two other firefighters were asked to stay on the Sat with the plane all night and each armed with a gun. They took up positions around the wreckage, he says, ready to protect themselves from scavengers, whether animal or human. As it turned out, the only visitors was a party of three men who showed up around 8 a.m. Monday. And although Alvin still respects they were looking for mementos or possibly valuables or maybe cash, they turned back with that incident. Local Lester Seal Sr., who was living at the foot of Buck's elbow, had just taken his Friday night bath and had turned off his lights to go to sleep shortly before the impact. He had heard a big boom, 
when word started getting around the next morning about a missing plane and what Mr. Seal had heard, and it set the Crozet gospel lines on fire, gossip lines on fire, I should say. And Mr. Seal, being moved by what he'd heard, conducted a fruitless search on Saturday. But when the family got up on Sunday morning, around 8 o'clock, there was a helicopter overhead, and Mr. Seal thought that they must have found a wreckage. Knowing the local terrain, the whole Seal family and their little brown dog got there just mere minutes after the first rescuers. It just looked like a giant bush hog had topped the trees, said Mr. Seal. When I looked at the plane, the whole right side was missing. It was opened up like a giant can opener got a hold of it. It was a mess. The inquest began immediately with the teams from Piedmont and the Silver Aeronautics Board, which was the predecessor to the National Transportation Safety Board, who arrived in town before, even before the plane was found. Two months later, the CAB convened two days of hearings in what was then known as the Monticello Hotel. Phil was uh, interviewed at bedside as he was still recovering in UVA hospital from one of the worst hip dislocations they'd ever seen. At this point, the off-course plane had, and pilot error was theory that was moving full throttle, and several bits of evidence seemed to support it. For starters, the plane may have been in the air too long for a normal approach. Another factor was that at least three persons at the airport specifically listened Listening for a Flight 349 stated they never heard it. The plane was found to be as, at its maximum allowable takeoff weight, but no ad- adverse handling issues had been noted. After all, this wasn't uncommon. The government and Piedmont Airlines conducted exhaustive flight and ground checks, flying 25 hours of test flights and bringing in experts from the Federal Communications Commission to see whether the various radio beacons might have acted erratically or whether unauthorized radio operation by a company may have known maybe have interfered with what the uh, radios were picking up. The weather was considered as was engine failure but both propellers were rotating on impact and then the government looked at the captain pilot George W. Laverink. He had learned radar from the Navy during World War II Afterwards, he went to work in ground communications for Panagora and an airline serving with South America. In 1948, he began taking flying lessons and became a Piedmont co-pilot in 1951. Based in Norfolk, he began raising a family, but the marriage he was, was strained and Captain Laverick underwent what the government called psychotherapy in 1953 and 54. Around the time of his promotion to captain in 1957, he received further therapy. Then again in 1959, when Piedmont transferred Captain Laverick to Arlington, he left his family behind in Norfolk, and then the marriage hit the ground. According to the divorce suit, Captain Laverick filed his wife had manifested interest in other men. She counterclaimed desertion. He began keeping a journal whose final entry read, Thank God, victory at last. Zeroing in on Captain Lambrink's mental condition, the government claimed his 
anxiety was so profound that his last round of psychotherapy included, after trying four other drugs, a prescription of Thorazine, a dosage to be taken three or four times a day. The consensus, according to the government report, is that Captain Laverick was so heavily burdened with mental and emotional problems that he should have been relieved from his strain of flight duty while undergoing treatment. Although the autopsy found no trace of any drugs in him, it was the first time that the government had laid blame for a crash on mental duress. Wayne Laverick Jr. alleges that contrary to the gloomy portrayal of his parents' marriage, just a few days before the crash, his parents, who had never actually divorced, made plans to become a family again. And that the victory at last comment in his father's journey probably referred to the marriage on the mend, not on the ground. Some claim that the real reason for the plane crash was that the searchlight at the new Kroger located in Barracks Road Shopping Center. Phil Bradley, whose ship delivered 60-inch searchlights to Normandy on D-Day, finds that theory ridiculous. For one thing, he had been or seen the Kroger searchlight on at least one prior flight, and the shopping center founder, David Carr, confirms that the searchlight may have remained in place for two weeks, maybe more. And there's a bigger problem with the theory. Pilots flying under instruments don't even navigate by ground markings anyway. It is thought by most in the area of the flight path there was a radio disturbance of some kind that sent the plane off course and into the side of the Buck's Elbow Mountain. This seems to pan out as the just a three and a half miles from the crash, investigators parked at the McCormick Gap Overlook in the Skyline Drive, and they, that's where they found their, to their horror that when they turned the radios to 284K, what was supposed to be the Charlottesville frequency, they actually picked up an overriding signal from Hagerstown, Maryland. The Hagerstown Airport had already been granted the right to operate its signal five watts higher than Charlottesville, and when investigators tracked down the beacon's private owner, the man admitted that he occasionally cranked the power up even higher to overcome interference. Hmm. He said, I'll tell you that, that to your face, but if you put me on the stand, I'll deny it. Ironically, Phil Bradley's ordeal didn't stop when he got to UVA Hospital. It was a young medical intern named Frank McHugh, later famous as the UVA football team doctor who put Phil's badly dislocated hip back into place by putting him on the floor and yanking briskly. <laughs> when Phil was finally released from the hospital on Christmas Eve, the four inches of falling snow made the ride beautiful, but the ambulance driver got lost near Stanton and ran out of gas four miles from Cliston Forge. Hmm. Sadly, the wife who kept vigil for Phil died four years later in an automobile accident. In 1970, Phil and his new wife, Zella, welcomed a child, Philip E. Bradley, Jr. Today, Phil lives in Monroe, North Carolina, a proud papa to three grandchildren. As the years passed, the story of the man who spent 36 hours on a chilly Appalachian mountain would be eclipsed by larger plane crashes, but Phil decided that Flight 349 and the people who lost their lives deserved commemoration, so he funded and designed the memorial himself. In 1999, with the permission of Albemarle County and the help of his son, Phil dedicated the monument 
which now stands at the base of Buck's Elbow Mountain in Mint Springs Valley Park. Unshakable in his belief that he saw Jesus standing three or four feet off the ground, that night Phil made the granite marker inscribed with the names of the victims, three or four square feet and terminating in a point. And he says Christ's hands were raised on Buck's Elbow Mountain. In 1997, when Phil penned a book about the crash, he noted in the introduction that he wrote it for the public and as a reminder for his son. The main message, he says, is simple. Never give up. I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please. If you like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report as well as a world of murder, mystery, and legend, yeah. Well, consider becoming a subscriber at anchor.fm for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend where we podcast group where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend. I'll see you then. <laughs>